Well, as you're having a seat this morning, if you don't mind grabbing your Bible, turning to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. In the month of January, we're going to be entering into a series called Roadblocks to Belief. Roadblocks to Belief. We'll pick back up in the Gospel of Matthew in February, but just for these few weeks, we'll be talking about this topic. Now, when you begin a series like this, it can be seen as an apologetic series, a series where we're talking about some doctrine, some theology. Begin to ask some questions of where should you begin? Where should we begin having this kind of an attempt or or a conversation from the pulpit to you? Because you can can think about it. On one hand, you, you can have a series where you're just giving out a tremendous amount of information. And that's, that's good and that's fine. But then you, you've got, you also have to understand that there's a sense in which preaching is not about just transferring information, but also helping to push you towards transformation. We, we want to see the Word of God transform your life. And so for us, as we begin to think about this new year, about where where could we begin, this idea of, hey, just kind of reorienting us to some core things that we believe. You begin to ask, where should we begin with a series like this? Now, Now, if you are aware, there's this movement happening, and it's not anything new. Solomon told us there's nothing new under the sun. But it's called a deconstruction movement. It's this idea of, of which you try to clean your palate and come to where you, you've eliminated all the, the thoughts that you've had in your head and you kind of rebuild a theology or rebuild what you believe. And I've done some research on the internet. And because the internet never lies, I have to take it for what it is. But there's lots of podcasts and writings and things about this deconstruction movement of of cleaning your palate one particular person he he said that the one of the first pillars is the particular pillar we're going to talk about today and when you think about a deconstruction movement of of what is keeping you from believing in the in the truth begin to ask some questions should you talk about the existence of god because many who deconstruct will will talk about does god even exist and that's something we'll talk about just not today One of the problems will be the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And, well, that's something we should talk about, but it's not something we'll talk about today. Some might say we ought to begin with the reality that, oh, we believe in a a heaven, but we don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. That is something we will talk about in this series, but not today. Another topic may be the the community or the church. And, And there's some church hurt that's happened among many people. And that's something we should talk about, but we're not gonna talk about that Today, I think we ought to talk about the primary pillar because while, yes, Christianity is based on Christ, the best way we know Christ, the surest way we know Jesus, the best way we can have transformation in our life is to have our life built upon the Word of God. The reality is is that many of those who deconstruct their faith will begin with the assertion that if you can strategically unhinge this thread of, the, the, of, of your faith, of believing that the Bible is the word of God, you then can topple the rest of the shirt. You can pull that thread and it'll unravel everything else in somebody's life. Because if you can disprove that the Bible is the, is the word of God, then you then can strategically dismantle their faith. 
What seems so interesting to me is that deconstruction of the faith is not happening among Islam or, or even Buddhists. And you say, well, then that must mean that they're true. No, I, I think it's happening primarily among Christianity because Christianity is true. And the enemy isn't worried about Islam. And the enemy isn't worried about Buddhism. And the, world, the enemy isn't worried about atheism. He's deeply concerned about you believing the truth that God has declared to us. And he wants to dismantle that. And I want today... I want to, uh, today to address the primary, one of the, the first pillars, if you will, of the deconstruction movement, which is, is this really the word of God? And maybe, like unto it for you, you say, well, I'm not asking that question. Okay, so maybe the question for you today is, do you actually really believe that this is the word of God? Because if you do, it will change a few things in your life. It will alter quite a bit about how you get married, how you live married, how you live your singleness, how you parent as a father or a mother, how you grandparent, what kind of job you take. It's going to change a number of things in your life. So today, we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we could have gone to a number of different passages, but today... We'll be in 2 Peter because there were some accusations coming against the apostles. And just think for a second, if there were accusations against the apostles, why should we be surprised that there would be accusations even today? So Peter is going to do his best, and I think he does a wonderful job of helping us see two significant factors in why we can believe that this is the word of God. And then I want to address probably just two complaints people have about the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're there, will you say word? I'm going to start in verse 16. It says this, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son who, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, verse 20, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Instead, I mean, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man, instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter, as an apostle, Peter was also a disciple of Jesus. He, he is being confronted with accusation that the disciples have, on some level, making some claims that they made up. The accusation was coming to, to Peter that, hey, you're making these claims that, that Jesus was the Son of God. You're making this claim that one day Jesus is going to return and judge the earth. You're making these claims that we ought to pay attention to what you have to say. And there were accusations against those things. There were accusations as if you were trying to consolidate power. Yeah, disciples, you're just after political power. There were accusations that what they were writing wasn't true because they were fallible and, and people had known their lives and had seen their lives as, and, and said, hey, because your life is fallible, how could, you, how could you ever say that this is 
true, a true word from the Lord. Peter responds to a lot of these accusations with really two significant markers when you think about this text. The first one is he says it in verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, who's his majesty? He's talking about Jesus. So one of the first things that Peter comes out and says to these people that are making these accusations, he says, wait, we didn't make these stories up. Some of your translations here say stories. We didn't, we didn't just create stories, but the word is mythos. The, it's myths. We didn't, we didn't come up together in that upper room and contrive an idea of talking about, hey, this, this Jesus and how we're going to kind of consolidate all of our power to him. And we made these stories up that we saw. The problem with that is multiple things. I mean, for instance, there are witnesses to the things that Jesus did. There were individuals and names that were shared in the Bible, specific people who lived during that time, during that season, that could have been questioned about these things. And so Peter says, hey, look, we saw these things. And in those days, just like ours, an eyewitness account carries in the court of law. Today, our eyewitnesses aren't just our own eyes, but it's often what are on our cell phone or on our cameras at our homes. I won't share any stories about mishaps on the ring. But Peter's saying, hey, these stories in the New Testament, we didn't just make them up. We didn't just come up with them and say, hey, you should believe these things. We saw these things. If we think then that people would make accusations against the scriptures, why should we be surprised when people begin to question, is this really the word of God? We shouldn't be surprised. And I know that if we went row by row and passed out a true and false test, do you believe this is the word of God? My assumption would be that you would say, yes, I do believe this is the word of God. And while that's great, we might have to ask a follow-up question then, how has this word of God changed your life? I know that if we ask that question, there would be a little bit of a difference maybe of response because some of us say, yes, I believe this is the word of God, but we haven't done anything with the word of God. When you say, yes, I know this is true, how do you know this is true? How do you know this is God's word? Well, Peter tells us, he says, there's eyewitnesses. People, we were there. We saw it. But I think also you have to go back to the very first book of the Bible. Part of the reason why we can believe this is the word of God is because we learn on the very first page of your Bible that God is a verbal God. God is a verbal God. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, no less than 10 times in the first chapter of Genesis, it says, and God said. God said. He didn't have to go to his his junk drawer to find all the extra Legos that are misplaced and then put them all together and then make things happen. He just spoke it and it happened. God is a verbal God. He is a speaking God. Theologically, we call this revelation. There's a revealing God has revealed himself and he has spoken. He hasn't just been a silent God. He's not a, an aloof God. He's not on vacation God. He is a speaking, verbal God. Revelation, God revealing himself in a general way, but also in a specific way. God revealing himself is evidence that God is love. 
The fact that God has made himself known to undeserving man is evidence that God is a God of love. One theologian said it this way, God allows his personal privacy to be invaded. God does not keep things just to himself. He has spoken, he's revealed himself to you. The fact that God does it, the fact that you have in your hand God's word or even on an electronic device God's word is just a small glimpse that God is love. See, See, even Paul will tell us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could even maybe say it this way, and I'm not trying to change scripture, don't send me that email. While we were still sinners, God spoke to us. There's a sense in which we have this word, and it's been a gift to us. God could have not said anything, and this let us fall into our own fate within our own sin, but instead God has spoken to us, and he's calling us, and he's revealed himself to us, and he's a speaking verbal God. Here's one reason why the Bible is not a myth. It's because Peter says it's not a myth. Now, now listen, that works for most of us in this room to go, yeah, Peter said it. Peter said it's not a myth. I believe it's not a myth. But to other people who are critical thinkers, they would go, well, that's circular reasoning. You're allowing the scripture to speak about itself. And so how can you, how can you do that? You're just talking in circles now. So one, one reason why I believe that I can believe Peter when he says we were eyewitnesses to this. One reason why I believe that when he says, hey, we're, we're eyewitnesses to his majesty. We, we just make this stuff up. One, one reason why I know this is because the message itself was too costly to just simply be a myth. The message itself was too costly to just simply be a myth. What, what did Peter gain? What did Peter financially gain, professionally gain, relationally gain by making known the gospel? What, what, was it, what, what benefit did he have? Church history tells us that Peter, the day before he was to be crucified, his wife was drugged out of their home to be crucified herself. And church history tells us, so this is outside of scripture, teaches us that that when Peter sees his wife being drugged off to be crucified, his last words to her were, remember the Lord. Peter, the next day, has come and the authorities come to take him to be crucified and he begs them to not crucify him up, uh, upright like Jesus, but rather to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die like his Lord died. Church history teaches us a secular Jewish historian named Josephus He tells us about Jesus' half-brother, James. Now think about this. This guy grew up with Jesus. I had one brother. He's older. I'm wiser, but he's older. It's fine. I love him. But I know what he did in life. And he knows what I was like under the same roof, two sinners under the same roof, when I was young. There's no way, I can tell you right now, there's no amount of money my brother would give and take to say that I am the son of God. He knows better, and I likewise. James lived under the same roof of Jesus. 
the scriptures even tell us that he's part of the, the family that comes to Jesus early on in his ministry and denies that he is the son of God. They tell him, just come home. Don't say anything else. And then as things begin to turn around, James eventually becomes the leader of the church. We, we might call it the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And he loses his life, a martyr's death. All the apostles, all the disciples lost their life for the sake of Christ. John, John was actually boiled alive. He lived. They didn't know what to do with him. They, so they said they sent him to an island called Patmos, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. What gain did these men have? If it was just a myth. What benefit to their life did they have to just make it up? In fact, none of these men in the midst of being persecuted and martyred for their faith in Jesus ever looked up and said, we were just kidding. We were in the upper room and, and it was Peter. Peter's the guy because he would always use words. Peter came up with it and, and he's the ringleader and, and we just kind of went along with it because, you know, whatever. Rarely does a witness lose their life over a lie. And you say, now wait a minute. We've all read stories about religious leaders who convinced people to take their life under their umbrella of religion. I remember this is going to date me, but it'll make some of you feel older. I was in fifth grade when David Koresh had convinced a whole group of people that he was Jesus. Y'all remember that? We called them the Branch Davidians. It was never in Waco, but it was near Waco, so just want to say Waco's name. You might say, didn't all those people give up their life? What about those men who flew planes into buildings in New York? I was in college when this happened. Didn't they give their lives up for what they believed in? Here's what I would say in response to that. People don't die for something they know is a lie. If these men knew that the gospel and Jesus were a lie, they would never have given their life up for it. These individuals that I've just referenced in these two different groups, they didn't know that what they believed was a lie, but it is a lie. But the apostles, they knew it to be true. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. We, we generally have a low tolerance when it comes to giving up our life for a lie. The gospel was too costly for them not to give up their lives. This, this first significant marker is that they were eyewitnesses. They saw these things. But there's something else that Peter tells us. He says it in verse 20 and 21. He, he says, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were, this is key, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if in one instance, Peter says, you can trust the Bible because there are eyewitnesses. On the other end, he's going to say, you can trust the word of God as the word of God because of the authorship. Who is the author of the Bible? The ultimate author of the Bible is not men, but God. 
How could, some say, the Bible be written by God and be perfect when it's obvious that men were the one who wrote it? I mean, in fact, you might read, hey, even in this book alone, it begins by saying, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Clearly, preacher, clearly, it's Peter who wrote this. Many of the assertions of the deconstructionists are those who say that because the Bible was written by men and they're flawed, they therefore have written a flawed document. It's full of inconsistencies. It's full of errors. It's not trustworthy. My answer is simply this simple phrase, phoreo. You don't see it in the English text because it's not in the English text, but it's this word carried along. Phoreo is this idea of a ship being carried along by the wind in the sea. See, Peter's saying, hey, we didn't just come up with this. We didn't just, we didn't just, just kind of make this up. We were phoreoed, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hey, I want to help illustrate that briefly. I have three daughters, and when they began to, to walk, of course, we would video it. And I remember, I remember when our oldest, she was the cutest thing ever, and you would all agree, of course, Way more cute than any of your children. But I remember when she began to walk, and we had one place in our whole house that had carpet. It was our master bedroom, and it was a really odd-shaped room, it was, but it was a big room, and so we were able to, to go in there, and she was going to learn to walk. And when we were teaching her to walk, I would, I would grab her hand and kind of lead her along, and then eventually she came to the place where she would do it on her own. But early on, as I'm walking with her, Whose, whose feet got her to where she was to go from point A to point B? It was, it was her feet. It wasn't my feet. I was, I was determining where she was going, but it was her feet that were moving. I mean, she didn't make it far, but she did make it. In the same way, how, how did these men come to this place where they wrote the word? They were carried along, phoreoed by the Holy Spirit. God himself was leading them and guiding them on what to say. That's what the Holy Spirit did. He took fallible men and wrote an infallible document, guided their words, the destination God had for them. How could that be? Pharaohing, that's how he did it. Now you could even say then, the Bible was written by God, but it was also written by man. You could say to a sense that you have some flavors of the men who wrote it. It's why the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, they have a different flavor to them, meaning that they just might look differently than the others. They're not all carbon copies. They, they look just a little bit different. We use a theological word to describe this as inspiration. We believe that the Bible is infallible and authoritative and sufficient and inerrant. We believe those things. We can believe those things, though, because it's inspired, breathed out by God. If it is true that these men were fallible, God never says that these men were infallible. God just says that his word is flawless and perfect. It's why, just, just as, an, as an aside, I hope, that you don't rely on my words every week. My hope is that you rely on 
God's word every week. Look, I I would love to be the pastor here until 2100. Do the math, all right? It's not possible. 2100. I'm not going to be the pastor at 2100. You, You won't be alive either. Let's just get it all out of the air. Rock Hill will only be the church God wants her to be, provided Rock Hill relies on God's word, not the preacher's words. It's why I I want you so desperately to read the Bible through in 2022. I want you to be in God's word. I want you to, to think about it, to listen to it, if that's how you can to get through the Bible in a year, to to read it, to meditate on it, because I want you to bring your Bible. It's why we generally preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're we're picking back up the Gospel of Matthew. I think there's some 70 sermons through the Gospel of Matthew total that we're going to be through as a church body. Holy smokes. But I want you to have more confidence in God's Word than just in me. You say, you're working yourself out of a job? Yeah, I want more preachers. We need more preachers. We need more men who are called by God to preach the word from the pulpits. We need more teachers, men and women, to teach the word. So Peter makes solid objections, these these objections that people have that the Bible is made up. He he says, hey, look, you you can trust it because we're eyewitnesses. You can trust it because of the authorship. And that leads me to this last little phase. And and listen, I I had about 10 different things that people make accusations against the scriptures on. But but I can't cover all those in our time that we have today. Because again, I I don't just want to give you information. I want to help you with transformation. But I just want to talk about two objections people have with the word of God. And then we'll be done. The The first objection is this, that I hear so common. There are contradictions in the Bible. Have you ever heard that before? Well, I can't believe the word of God because there's too many contradictions. It seems that, see, that is one of the most common frustrations people have with the word of God. Even some Christians will say, oh yeah, tons, thousands of contradictions. I, I saw one make the claim that there was 160,000 contradictions in the Bible. Now, when you begin to study his math, he said if there was a misspelling in one, a, sp- a different spelling in one manuscript versus another manuscript, that's a contradiction. Listen, I misspelled Wednesday until I was a junior in high school. <laughs> but if that's a contradiction, then we've, we've just redefined the term contradiction. When you actually begin to study these supposed contradictions, you begin to understand that they aren't contradictions. They're mere a misunderstanding of how to interpret the Bible and how to do proper hermeneutics. You understand the proper hermeneutics is understanding a text within the context. You can't just peel out a text of scripture and put it on a mug and say, this is my life verse. There's a context that goes with that. There's a reality that is behind that. And so for many people, they'll say there's contradictions, but what they really mean is that they don't understand how to interpret the Bible. And so you have to help them understand that. Here's an example at the resurrection. One person might say, well, in one gospel, there's one angel at the tomb. But in another gospel, they say there's two angels. Clearly, pastor, that's a contradiction. That's not a contradiction. That's just a moment of perspective. One person only saw one angel. Another person saw two angels. Either way, there were angels there. 
Some might say, oh, in one gospel, there's, there's a, a feeding of, of, of 5,000. In another gospel, there's a feeding of 4,000. Which one is it? Obviously, that's a contradiction. Let me just ask you, who said that there wasn't just one feeding of the 5,000? There could have been multiple feedings. And have you ever counted 5,000 people? Please see me afterward if you have. <laughs> These supposed contradictions clearly end up not being contradictions at all. And I've looked at hundreds of these supposed contradictions, but when you look at them and understand them, you're going to go, no, they're not contradictions. They're just a misunderstanding on how to read the Bible, which is why you've got to be discipled in Jesus to help you interpret and understand these things. Let me deal with this one. I know time is running out. What about all the culturally insensitive things in the Bible? I don't believe the Bible because of all these culturally insensitive. It is outdated. There's some even evangelicals that will say we've got to unhinge the Old Testament because of all the culturally insensitive things in the Old Testament today. We say, what do you mean? Well, in the Old Testament, some make the claim that the Old Testament taught and promoted polygamy. The Old Testament is not TLC. It doesn't promote polygamy. Some say the New Testament teaches and promotes slavery. And some use both of those examples as proof that they should be allowed to do those things. Okay, so let's deal with that. You should understand that when someone makes this accusation, there may be a sense to where they have a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding between a biblical concept and a current context. Take slavery, for example. We'll deal with polygamy. Just give me a minute. Take slavery. When you hear the word slavery, you automatically think of the westernized or Americanized African slave trade. It's, a, it's a, automatically where you go to. It's just where your mind goes to. You can't help it. You live in America. That is not what Paul and others are referencing in the New Testament. When they use the word slavery, the, the, <coughs> excuse me, the old world slavery was more of an indentured servant, somebody who was not able to pay their bills, and they became a, a bond servant. They willed themselves, contractually willed themselves to somebody in an effort to gain income, housing, a roof for their family. They would work for that person. And there came a point to where they could buy their release. But it was not a kidnapping and it was not forced labor. Slavery, that is forced labor and kidnapping, is repudiated in the scriptures. 1 Timothy 1.10, Deuteronomy 24.7. That kind of slavery is, uh, is appalling and should not be among Christians. But when he's saying slavery in the New Testament, even, even, even Paul, when he writes this, the book of Philemon, he's going to write about how he discourages indentured servanthood. So there's a sense to where they were understanding the cultural context and speaking into it. So the New Testament doesn't promote slavery. It's actually going to help us redefine it and understand what it is and how it should be. Polygamy. Polygamy. Now, I do not believe in progressive theology. But I do understand progressive revelation where we begin to understand more and more when it comes to the truth. For example, God understands the cultures to which he is speaking into and he plants seeds for them to come to fruition to understand the truth about how they should live and be. Here's an example. 
a book that I read in seminary, which was a long time ago, but it was called The Art of Biblical Narrative, Robert Alter. And he says there was an institution that was in the Old Testament that was pervasive, two of them. Polygamy was one of them, and primogeniture, which was where the oldest child inherited everything for the family. And as the youngest child in our family, I'm so glad that doesn't exist anymore. But when you read the biblical narratives, particularly through Genesis and Deuteronomy, you find polygamy everywhere. It's rampant. And honestly, it was causing havoc everywhere it went. No family was happy under polygamy. No husband was happy with multiple wives. Okay. Even Solomon, he had a bounty of wives and concubines. And he says, it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. None of it's satisfied. So what you realize, though, is when you get to the New Testament, we have a clear understanding of how the family should operate. Paul writes explicitly in the book of Ephesians that husbands should love and sacrifice for the wives and wives should submit to the husband's there's a sense of where the, the family economy and the order of the family is, is structured to which that there is now a picture of what health and ideal family should look like. Primogenture, which is where you have the oldest inheriting everything. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that God is always reversing the birth order? Cain and Abel, Isaac over Ishmael. Right? Do you see how God is always He chooses Jacob, not Esau. Jacob was the younger brother. So you're seeing how God is reversing this this kind of cultural order that's been happening throughout. But again, all of this, all of this, all this goes back to, there are always going to be accusations and questions about the Bible, and you shouldn't be afraid of them because God's not afraid of them. But when someone can honestly come to a place to say, look, there were eyewitnesses to it. They saw these things happen, and they wrote them down. But yet they wrote them down and they were guided by the Holy Spirit. We know who was inspiring them to write these things. Then you can come to a place to where you believe and trust in the word of God as the word of God. And then therefore you become a herald of this good news. And being a gospel bearer was not something that was unique to Christianity. It was something that was done throughout history. But now, because you believe this word of God, you can say, I believe the word of God, and I want it to change me. Because if you study the scriptures, you're going to find, you're not just going to find information, you're going to find a person. The Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Jesus. The Gospels declare the time of Jesus. And the letters and the epistles that were written are reflections back on Jesus. And then the book of Revelation is a promise of the coming of Jesus. Everywhere you turn in the scriptures, you begin to see his name is whispered. And you begin to go, oh, he's coming. And I can't wait for him to come. A.W. Tozer. And I'll be done. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, the big problem is not whether the Bible is true. The big problem is whether the Bible is true in you. So today, friend, it's the 2nd of January. Will you make God's word true in you? You may be here today, and you've not trusted in God's word. You've denied his word. You've denied him as Lord. The Holy Spirit is softening your heart. I would invite you to respond to that. Don't deny. Don't, don't push out the spirit. He's calling you. Maybe you're here today, and you've just kind of been 
like so many of us, just busy with so many other things, and you need to recalibrate, say, I want to have a heart that's after the Word of God. I want the Bible to be one of the first books I read in the day. That I want that to be my heartbeat. Today, you can make that commitment as well. Or maybe for you, you just need to pray where you are as we sing in a moment, and just say, God, I, I need your Word in my life. Help me to, to not just make promises, but to Make a plan of action to get the word in my life. That's our invitation today. Josh is going to play. You'll stand and we'll sing together in response. I want to pray for us. God, help us. Because, Lord, there's so many things that we get invested in over our days. There's so many other things we read first before we read your word. There's so many things we do before we even consider, I have breath because I have God today. I have life because I have God today. And so, Lord, help us. As the coldness snaps us a little bit to our bones, Spirit, snap us today to wake up to what really matters, that everything I could have ever wanted in life is found in Jesus. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand and respond as God leads you today.